Chelsea Fairless. And I'm Lauren Garoni. <laughs> I love that enthusiasm in your voice, especially since like we've literally been talking about climate change for the past 15 minutes. And I don't know how we're supposed to get out of this space and talk about the dumb bullshit that we talk about every week. I think that's how we survive. Yeah, you're right. That is that is how we survive. The Daily Mail is self-care. Until it's not. Too much Daily Mail is harmful for your health. You're right. You're right. There's there's a there's a limit. Yeah, it's kind of like being a social smoker. You, know, you just <laughs> need that like little hit of Daily Mail. Yeah. I just need the 10 articles that you send me a day, as we've previously discussed. Let's not act as if you do not equally send me Daily Mail articles. That's true. I did send you a Daily Mail article last night about Paulina Porzakova's topless selfie in the wake of her breakup with Aaron Sorkin, which I then blew your mind when I said, because you were like, wait, they've only been dating for three months. I said, oh, yeah, he badgered her basically to go be his date for the Oscars. That was their first date. That's so awkward. That's like aggressive. That has to be like some like warning sign of like a sort of DV sitch or something, you know? Well, I can't wait to see how he works in this relationship into one of the things he does because Studio 60 on the Sunset Strip, there's a character played by Sarah Paulson that's okay. based on Kristen Chenoweth and his relationship with Kristen Chenoweth mm, and like dating a Christian. <laughs> <laughs> right. She is Christian. She's very Christian. She's very petite and very Christian. Just like me. No. <laughs> Look, only one of us has been confirmed in the Catholic Church, right? Oh, that's me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's definitely not me. Bitch, my dad's an atheist and my mom's a Unitarian Universalist. Like, I'm not going near that shit. I just can't believe you remember that about me. <laughs> Well, I know that Catholicism is part of your culture, not so much of as a religious thing, but more, you know. more the aesthetic. Is that because of the shell Jesus that I have in my bookcase that I picked up at Atomic Passion, the East Village? Ah, oh, I loved Atomic Passion. Yeah, it's like regardless of whether you're like a practicing Catholic, I think that once you're raised Catholic, you never are not obsessed with the kitschy stuff. Oh, yeah. I'm not here for the institution. I'm here for the aesthetic. Yeah. I'm here for Baz Luhrmann's <laughs> Romeo and Juliet. Do not tempt me, Chelsea. Do you know what I want to put in my house are those neon uh, crosses <laughs> that are around the flower crosses. I think that would be a perfect entryway, like in my house. <laughs> and inside you're just like lying. <laughs> Okay, I guess we should stop with the banter because we have things to talk about. Oh my God, right? we have so much and just like that news. Of course, after we recorded our podcast last week is when Page Six posted a page from the Just Like That script. I love how they were like, leak script, leak script. Because I saw the headline first. I'm like, oh my God, someone dumped the episode online. Really what it is is a paparazzo photographed a page of the script that was obviously on someone's cart while they were shooting. Right. So all the scripts are watermarked. It was watermarked with the name Charles Hunt. Oh, you are such a fucking <laughs> narc. <laughs> you can clearly You're see... You're going to get Charles Hunt fired 
from this production. Charles Hunt might already be fired. It has nothing to do with me. But I thought I would do my little IMDb Pro thing to figure out who exactly is Charles Hunt. <laughs> Okay. Um, so there is a New York-based sound mixer named Charles Hunt <laughs> who has worked on such New York-based productions as King of Staten Island, okay. Punisher, and Chelsea. He worked for eight years and 116 episodes on Law & Order SVU. Oh, bless. He Char- dropped the ball. He just didn't realize people cared this much, you know? Well, obviously it was attached. It was the script, uh, and it was attached to probably his audio card. Okay. That's out out in the wild, man. Yeah, we didn't post the script page on our account out of respect for the cast and writers. And also because we didn't want to further disseminate it across the internet. But we're going to talk about it here because we love you guys and you've already read it anyway. So who the fuck cares, right? In the episode notes, we'll just put a timestamp of where we get non-spoilery. Yeah. Because God forbid one of you sends us one more DM or comment being like, I'm sorry, but I'm going to have to unfollow till the show comes out because you're spoiling everything. It's like blocked, bitch. <laughs> <laughs> like, come on. I don't know what you people want. I'm not talking to you, the podcast listener. I'm talking to these randos. We started this account five years ago, never imagining that they were going to, I mean, maybe make another film, but never do an, an extension of the series. And now we've gone from pithy commentary about outfits from 15 years ago to kind of being the TMZ of one cult TV show. Yeah, it's really weird. Um, anyway, the script. The script. So there's two really noteworthy pieces of dialogue. So basically Carrie's like sitting, eating brunch with Miranda and Charlotte and Stanford. Confirmation, Stanford has been invited to brunch fucking finally. Finally, thank God. So, Although it seems like a shitty brunch. <laughs> I guess the Soho Diner went out of business during the pandemic. Yeah, yeah. Realistically, that diner would have been like on Howard Street and they would have turned it into like the bathing ape store or something. So yeah, they're, they're all sitting at brunch. Stanford finally invited, but unfortunately he has the seat that keeps getting slammed by this like swinging door that I guess goes from the restaurant to the kitchen. Right. And uh, Carrie says, let me switch seats with you. I'm used to getting slammed from behind. Okay, so I don't think I did the correct delivery there, but I wish I could do a good Sarah Jessica Parker impersonation. Should I try? Sure, why not? Oh, let me switch seats with you. I'm used to getting slammed from behind. (laughs) Is that good? I mean, it's better than me. It's 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 clear that Michael Patrick King just in his DNA misses writing for Samantha because this is a fucking Samantha line. It is a full Samantha line. But I'm like, I want receipts. Like, is this what coloring outside of the lines means like doggy style? Is it that simple? Oh, man. I don't know, but I love it. I'm here for this era of Carrie being more candid about sex, you know, being less prudish. The other noteworthy line is another Carrie line, which I'll give to you. I was taping the podcast. I was washing my hair. Yes, I wasn't eating or sleeping, but at least I felt good about my marriage. Now I'm just one of the wives he was taking care of. Mic drop. Dun, dun, dun. Yeah, we didn't see that coming. I don't know. It's like, obviously, this indicates that Carrie and Big's marriage has combusted. Although, because we don't know if they're block shooting or not, we don't really know if this is first episode or what, right? Yeah, if they're shooting all the exteriors at once, if they're shooting episode by episode or what have you. So the jury's out on that. So that was Friday. Weekend happens. And so it's like, okay, what exactly does that 
mean? One of his wives, is he a, is big a bigamist? Oh, do you think that's how Michael Patrick came? If this is the storyline, he was like, big bigamist? <laughs> the light bulb like went off. We know daddy MPK loves a, loves a pun. Yes. And then come Tuesday, uh, we were truly shocked to see the return of Bridget Moynihan, good old Natasha Nijinsky. Yeah, that that I did not see coming. On set, entering a building in Soho, wearing a wedding ring, notable. Mm -hmm. And then later that day, we saw the ladies, Carrie, Miranda, Charlotte, walking down the same street, seemingly stopping in front of Natasha's building, where onlookers could hear Sarah Jessica Parker saying, he's in that building across the street, three floors up, one, two, three, oh shit. And then Moynihan was seeing, reading a book in the window. Taylor Jenkins reads book Daisy Jones and the Six, if anyone cares. <laughs> I feel like that was like a summer beach read two years ago. And I believe that Reese Witherspoon bought the rights to it. So again, in case anyone cares, I have not read this book. Um, look at you, IMDb Pro over there. <laughs> What I, does this mean? Well, Natasha is still a minimalist, which we've learned. She still has the same like Calvin Klein, Narciso Rodriguez vibe that she had in the early 2000s. She's consistent, of course. Just keeping that Carolyn Bissett energy alive. Yeah. So what do we think that means? That Big never divorced Natasha. Big is having an affair with Natasha. We did posit, again, in a different Sex and the City 3 plot we came up with, which had them in more of like a Golden Girls age, that Big leaves Carrie for Natasha's daughter. Yeah, but they haven't gotten like, they haven't aged enough for that to be like a plausible plot line. It could be coming down the road. I mean, I think it would be nice if Big and Natasha were both married and this blows up both of their marriages. What in the Nancy Meyer film is this? <laughs> I know. If you listen to our Hamptons episode a couple of weeks ago, it's like, does this man not have a Long Island house he can have an affair in? What is he doing this? Does he think because he's 70 blocks downtown that Carrie's never going to find out? Yeah, wild, but truly shocking. I think it's nice, you know, with this reboot, we've previously expressed a desire for them to bring back old characters and things like that. And I think this is a really promising development. And do you think Natasha's teeth color finally match? <laughs> I mean, I'm sure. I'm sure she's had several more painful dental surgeries since the year 2000. What else happened with filming this week? They shot at Webster Hall. For Che Diaz's podcast recording? Yeah, and that's uh, Sarah Ramirez's character. It could be a podcast recording I believe they said that their character was a comedian, though, also. So it oh, could true. just be like straight up comedy. But I hope it's a live podcast taping and that Carrie is on the panel or something. Speaking of which, when are we going to do those events, Lauren? What do you mean? Webster Hall or just live podcast? Live podcast tapings. You know, if you've got a, a valid vaccination card or a negative COVID <laughs> test, we'll be at a performance venue near you. Oh, my God. You know what we could call it? Okay. If it was in town, it could be for those of you who do live in Los Angeles. <laughs> and if it's like in New York, it could be for those of you who don't live in Los Angeles. Yeah, thank you to that person who left us a review and gave us the suggestion that when we eventually do merch, we should have something that says for those of you who don't live in Los Angeles. Yeah, I'll do it. I'm down. So major fashion looks. 
Yeah, we finally got to see the girls going out at night in New York, which we haven't seen since Samantha's 50th birthday party at the end of the first Sex in the City film. So that was really refreshing to me because I feel like that's what people want to see. That's why people liked Sex in the City. And I think those were the best episodes of Sex in the City where it was just like them going out, having fun, shenanigans ensue, whatever, or hijinks ensue, whatever. And obviously... It seems like between the appearance of Natasha and then also some styling choices that not only Michael Patrick King, but Molly Rogers, the costume designer, are doing a bit of fan service because the bag that Carrie is wearing is not only the return of the Fendi baguette, but it's a purple Fendi baguette. And I don't know if you noticed this. It's like the baguette that she had in the Fendi commercial two years ago. That and also it's the bag she was wearing when she got mugged in the season three's penultimate oh. episode, What Goes Around Comes Around. So it's the bag that she got taken from her. Oh, okay. That's amazing. She got it back. But I wonder if it's echoing that episode because that episode is all about karma because right before um, Carrie gets mugged in that episode, she's having lunch with the girls and Natasha and her friend walk in. Oh, yeah, you're right. See, I didn't even connect it with that because it reminded me of that Fendi ad that SJP shot a few years ago that had the tagline. This isn't a bag. It's a baguette. Yeah, but I love to see it. They also brought the studded belt back, not in these Webster Hall looks, but in in the aforementioned Natasha stocking Soho vibes. Yes, the, the belt that's called Roger. Right. I love the person that commented, her name is Roger. Put some respect on that belt. I like to see her wear things that she's worn in in the show or in the films, but you would think that that would be the one piece of clothing that Carrie would have to burn just because it's clearly so obviously imbued with the toxic vibes from that like bell jar-esque Mexicoma era. Like that's the belt that she was wearing when she saw the issue of Vogue with her bridal couture spread in it. You know what scene I need in And Just Like That? Hmm. I need the scene where Carrie brings Lily to basically just a row of Manhattan storage units that house all her clothing. Yeah, it's like, does she still have that Vivian Westwood wedding dress in her Manhattan mini storage? Like, surely she's read Marie Kondo's books at this point, right? If anyone would get into Marie Kondo, it would definitely be Charlotte. Could you imagine if Charlotte Marie kondo Carrie's closet? Her, her storage unit? <laughs> her storage unit, yeah. <laughs> And then Charlotte, going back to the Webster Hall scene, was wearing black again. So I like this movement with yeah, Charlotte. That just that dark glamour. The Monica Belluccian continues. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was like sexy, like Perot vibes almost, you know, big ruffles. And what did you think about Miranda's jumpsuit? Well, what do you, I don't know what to say. I don't like a jumpsuit on anyone. I don't like jumpsuits. A jumpsuit is a flawed concept. And I recently was going through my closet. I was like, why don't I have any jumpsuits? And it's like, oh, yeah, because when you wear it out, which where else would you be wearing a jumpsuit to? When you have to use the restroom, you have to take the entire thing off and make sure it doesn't touch the floor. Like no one should have to strip naked in the Webster Hall bathrooms just because they have to pee. Webster Hall, where I once saw an overturned garbage can on the floor and then a woman on the floor crawl into it head first and start vomiting. Well, I mean, that's just efficient. (laughs) She's like, I'm hiding myself and I'm vomiting in a trash can. Also, did you want to get into Miranda's giant backpack and those Soho walking scenes? Yeah, she is wearing a very large backpack. 
it's interesting because it's like on one hand, having a big backpack in New York is a very practical thing because you always are carrying shit. Everyone in New York by the end of the day when they're like headed home has like an armful of Dwayne Reed bags and like gym clothes and like it's it's a fucking nightmare. So I get the backpack, but she's also wearing like cork wedges. So it's like a real like mixed bag. High, low, mostly lows. Yeah. At this point, it's like, just incorporate the Bernie Sanders tote that we've seen Cynthia in. Yeah. And then I just wanted to comment on a DM that we got from someone who asked us to talk about how Miranda's hair seems to be blonde. Right. Well, it is. Cynthia Nixon's actual hair color is blonde. Yeah, she is not a bottle red. It's like one of those like Tori Amos type optical illusions where you just assume. Is Tori Amos not actually a redhead? No, she's a fucking brunette. Whoa. Isn't that insane? But like Tori Amos, Cynthia Nixon has really owned red hair despite being a blonde. And it actually is canon within the show because Miranda discusses in this clip. You Irish? No. Why? Because you have beautiful red hair. I guess anybody can be Irish with the right colorist. It is Sex in the City canon that she is not a natural redhead. Yeah, and she has a little gray like coming into it, but it's not like some people have been like, it's gray. It's like, it's not. She's just a blonde. A blonde gray mix. And I've noticed that Sarah Jessica Parker's hair has some gray streaks in it, which I like for Carrie. Yeah, she's unleashing her inner Susan Sontag or Stacey London. Or Diane Keaton too. Yeah, I, I'm here for it. Speaking of rich people on we, shall we discuss White Lotus? Is that what it's called? I still can't figure out the name. I'm like, is it is it um, the second best White Lotus Hotel? Is it you the were... Grand Budapest Lotus Hotel? <laughs> it's the White Lotus. I'm so excited to talk about this with you. Yeah, so we were discussing Mike White. Mike White, who is much beloved for his prematurely canceled show, Enlightened, that was also on HBO, has come back with a new show, a new limited series called White Lotus, which is set at a Hawaiian resort, and it follows the exploits of various rich guests and the employees over the span of a week. The employees that are forced to serve them. It's interesting. I haven't seen anyone discuss in Britain. Most recently they did Downton Abbey, but like that's a very famous format for them. What's called the upstairs downstairs. And in America, we don't really do shows like that, but it's essentially what this is. An upstairs downstairs. It's the rich people who come to this resort with all of their problems and uh, the employees who have to make them feel good constantly, who of course have their own problems. Right. I think I love this because I feel like most films and television shows that depict class struggle aren't that funny. You know, like there's nothing like funny about like a bicycle thieves or I guess that like Parasite was like kind of funny, but it was still really like dark and brutal and, and all of that. But I feel like the White Lotus is just so smart and so nuanced and and it has brilliant and has some of the best character studies of culture right now i'm thinking about connie Britton and steve zahn's daughter and her friend who are on vacation who oh i'm obsessed with them who are seemingly the red scare hosts yeah exactly the the only other podcasters with voices as monotone as ours it's totally that like it's not super literal but i think between the like jokes about like pedophile sex rings and like dragging hillary clinton i think anyone that listens to that podcast would draw that parallel to them but i think they're so funny i love the first scene when they're dragging like all of the, oh, the hotel the guests boat. yeah 
If Sex and the City didn't scoop up actresses of a certain age, it seems like the White Lotus scooped up the rest of them because this show has Connie Britton, Mm -hmm. Jennifer Coolidge, and soon, and not soon enough, Molly Shannon. Yeah, I can't wait for that. And I also really love the, who's the guy that plays the like, that was like Lena Dunham's boyfriend in Girls? Uh, Jake Lacey is the actor. He's really, really great. And he also played... The boyfriend to Zoe Kravitz in uh, High Fidelity. He's oh, just yeah. that guy. Yeah, he's great. I mean, also, I think that the situation that we see played out in the first two episodes between that guy and the hotel manager is like the sort of perfectly nuanced. Oh, that that, uh, that critique case? of the upper classes because, like, basically, like he, well, his mommy. His mom booked the honeymoon suite. And then when he gets there, he's in a beautiful suite, but he realizes he's not in the suite that he took the virtual tour of. So it's kind of like this ongoing passive aggressive war with the manager about the room. And he's trying who, to get a better li- room. Who lies to him? And because you see both oh, sides fully. of the story. You do you see, see both. <laughs> you do. Because like at, on one hand, it's like the manager is fully gaslighting him, like fully. But on the other hand, I feel like this- Just let it go. Yeah, exactly. I feel like that sort of situation is really like emblematic of a certain like rich person trope, some, not all, which is like a deep seated paranoia that people are trying to fuck you over or like take things from you. When like, I think that people, middle class and working class people like don't necessarily automatically go there. And like, yeah, sometimes that makes sense because obviously like the more power and money you have, like you are susceptible to that. But I think it's just like a very specific trait that is skewered so brilliantly on this show. And also his wife played by, I believe the, the actress's name is Alessandria, Alessandra Daddario or Alex Daddario. Anyway, she's very beautiful. Yeah. She's got those golem eyes like I do. So I like, I like, <laughs> I like big eyed actresses, <laughs> big eyed pale actresses. I relate to deeply. But Mike White in an interview with The New Yorker, which is one of the best profiles of a screenwriter, a director I've ever read. It's so fun. But he was discussing the idea that he always wanted to write about someone who married into money and realized like, oh, I made a mistake. Right. You never had this lifestyle. So you've always idolized it. Once you get it, you're like, oh no, this is kind of terrible and everyone sucks. It's such a common thing. And I've known people that have been in this exact oh, situation. Sure. And yeah, that is, that is a very common thing. There's what? just so many fun ruling class things that they touch upon, like everyone's kids being drug addicts also. How did they smuggle all of this? They smuggled <laughs> ketamine? I mean, most of them are scripts for them, right? Like the Adderall and uh, Xanax and stuff. Like those are obviously, they're just overprescribed children. But I'd be terrified to smuggle drugs on a plane. But like, that's the kid I Speak was. Speak for yourself, Lauren. <laughs> <laughs> just kidding. We haven't even gotten into Jennifer Coolidge. Ugh. She's so major. And again, I feel like the just really strange, uncomfortable dynamic between her and the spa employee that she's obsessed with is just like... Yes, she's there to... She wants a massage. Well, no, she's there ostensibly to spread her mother's ashes and is obviously going through it and is that kind of very rich, fragile woman. Right. Of course, ahead of time, did not make a reservation for a massage and then gets there and immediately immediately wants a massage. And so the the manager of the hotel's like, of course, always, you know, it's the improv thing. Yes. And right. Of course, we could try to fit you in. And all the Jennifer Coolidge can get in the first episode is this woman basically doing like a form of Reiki. <laughs> yeah. That breaks Jennifer Coolidge's mind in the best way. And then she becomes obsessed with her masseuse. Yeah. 
And to the point where she invites her to dinner in the second episode. It's so uncomfortable and so perfect. And it reminded me of this thing that Judy Dench says in Notes on a Scandal when she's doing like her demented Carrie Bradshaw-esque voiceover about Kate Blanchett, where she's like, privileged people aren't cautious when it comes to just divulging a lot of personal information to a random stranger. And I feel like that's kind of what this is, is just a lack of boundaries and awareness. But of course, like done in the funniest way possible oh my god and we haven't even gotten to steve zom's um dick and and balls oh wait (laughs) oh yeah no i wasn't talking about his prosthetic dick and balls although that's certainly worth mentioning i'm sorry i didn't give you a a warning warning. listeners if you haven't watched the white lotus i'm giving you that warning now because it is quite unexpected turn off the hd just like so steve zahn is Kind of just a, a beta bro guy who's married to Connie Britton, who's some kind of Marissa Mayer girl boss at a tech company. She's like the CFO of Goop, basically, I think, right? Yeah, or or I, I feel like in the second episode, she talked about like some hiring software. I don't know. Oh, okay, so it's... It, right. It, it exists in that sex in the city world where it's like vague tech broad. Right, right. But anyway, Steve Zahn learns that he he's worried he has testicular cancer. He learns he does not... But in his fear, he calls his uncle because he knows his father, who died when he was young, had cancer. And I'm sorry, spoiler alert for White Lotus. These are for all of you who watched it. In this, at the end of the second episode, he learns what his father actually died of, which was AIDS, which is way funnier than it sounds. I, I can't. I was crying during that scene. I was screaming with laughter. It is the funniest, most just like transgressive, hilarious reveal. I just, I loved it. Which, he's, Mike White is very much like, he's a lot like Todd Solons actually, but just like slightly less fucked up and like able to do commercial projects and not just indies. Do you know the first film he's credited as a screenwriter on? No, but something tells me that you do. Do you remember the film Dead Man on Campus? Yes. It's a movie that came out in the <laughs> late do. 90s. I actually do. <laughs> with Mark Paul Gossler and Tom Everett Scott. Tom Everett Scott, who was in That Thing You Do with Steve Zahn. Oh, uh. bringing it back. <laughs> this is a film you could never remake now. The plot is Mark Paul Gossler and Tom Everett Scott are, are roommates, and they party their entire freshman year. They're about to flunk out of school. And then they hear about an urban legend that if your roommate commits suicide, they have oh, to yeah. give you all A's. So good. Did you watch Chuck and Buck, as I suggested? No, I didn't want, I didn't have time to it's, watch it. It's so good. I, well, Mike White stars in that and wrote it, but I don't think he directed it. But it's just like he plays this like deranged, developmentally delayed guy who is becomes obsessed with his childhood best friend, basically. It's just like it's so dark and funny. Chuck, who is played by the actor Chris Weitz, who would end up becoming a writer and director, he directed New Moon, the Twilight film. Wild. Chuck and Buck just has the best ending, like reveal. It's kind and it's that same like discomfort of the conversation between Steve Zom and his uncle about his father's death, you know? It's just like so dark and perfectly funny. So watch the Marigold Hotel. <laughs> the sec- third the, best the Lotus. The third best Lotus Marigold Hotel <laughs> in Budapest. Oh boy. Speaking of entitled people, 
Oh, yeah. This is kind of a perfect transition, actually. I would love to see Mike White's take on Leandra Medine. Yes. So we're doing what we're calling a toxic influencer roundup. Right. So a couple weeks ago, Man Repeller founder Leandra Medine had a very controversial appearance on the podcast The Cutting Room Floor, which is hosted by fashion designer Rachel Amundi. For those of you who aren't familiar with Leandra, she was an early aunt's fashion blogger who evolved her fashion blog into basically a Refinery29-esque media site. She was canceled for Man Repeller's performative Black Lives Matter post on their Instagram at the height of the George Floyd protests, as well as criticism for firing a black employee at the beginning of the pandemic. So after laying low for a while, Leandra reemerged and gave a very candid interview where she admits to not knowing that she was rich, not really having a clear vision of what the Man Repeller brand was, and not really wanting to have a brand. This podcast made waves in the fashion world, you know, first and foremost for Leandra's out of touch and problematic point of view, and secondly, because of Omondi's own commentary on Leandra that veered into anti-Semitism. Yeah, anti-Semitic tropes. Uh, look, we've debated whether we were going to talk about this because mostly... Did I you see that DM where someone was like, would you like to talk about this or would you rather not touch it with a 10-foot pole? And I'm like, both? Both? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, we debated whether we wanted to talk about it or not, mostly because what more is there to say? But then yeah. we realized there's one thing that no one's really talking about that we do want to get into. Yeah, when we were first discussing this interview, Lauren invoked a pop culture reference which felt very appropriate, which is this clip of our friend John Early as his character Elliot on Search Party. I don't want to work. I don't like working. Working sucks. <laughs> Sorry, what? <laughs> yeah, no, yeah, yeah. At first I thought it was writer's block, but then later I realized it's actually just the discomfort of hard work. Okay, I, yeah, I mean, you know, who likes to work? You know, not me. You know, no one likes to, but uh, we have to. It's just kind of what you gotta do in mm -hmm. life is work. No, not for me, not for me at all. I mean, I have a lot of stuff I want to say in my lifetime, um, but I've realized that I want to find the easiest way to say it. Okay, we'll find a ghostwriter. I think that's what we'll do. That's easy. Yeah, yeah you're not listening to me. Working feels bad, and I don't ever want to work one more day in my entire life. Oh, my God, it feels so good to say that. Yeah, that's what the interview sounded like to me. I mean, that was the full vibe, and part of me was like, oh, which bitch, part? I feel you. Like, work is hard. Sometimes it does suck, but also you can't say that in public, especially if you're in a position of power, especially if you've been recently canceled. I knew in 10 months she wasn't going to have a good grasp of her own behavior and, like, what led her to this point. Right. I mean... She at one point said, I'm not racist, I'm just a bad boss, which is like, no, you can't say that. I mean, but it's just that's such an interesting way of handling this. In a Mike White, eat the rich, <laughs> white lotus way, yes. Yeah. It's really psychotic. I mean, I think that she was taking a page from the Brene Brown playlist in her own mind. Like, there's strength and vulnerability and all of that. But her vulnerable, most authentic self has no self-awareness about her privilege or anything. So it's like, she's not going to come across as likable, even though I believe that that was her intention. Yeah, I wasn't expecting anything revelatory about her own behavior or a sense of self-awareness, but 
What I thought was the most revelatory thing that I think no one's talking about is her rampant imposter syndrome. Yeah. She basically is like, oh, well, I made Man Repeller into a media site because I saw what Emily Weiss did with Into the Gloss, Into Glossier. So I figured like I had to step- And what Sophia Amoroso did with Nasty Gal. Yeah. So I had to take things to the next level. Which that makes total sense because to invoke another one of my self-help gurus, Oprah, it's like one of her guiding spiritual principles is that intention rules the outcome. So if your intention is to keep up with Sophia Amoroso and Emily Weiss and not to like, I don't know, empower women through fashion or whatever the fuck, then this is like obviously going to be the outcome. Yeah, I guess the stunning thing was just how much of a house of cards Man Repeller is because they were fully funded. They had partnerships. There was no reason, aside from the controversy that the company couldn't continue, the idea that in her canceling, she came to realize that she never wanted any of this in the first place. Yeah, she clearly didn't. She didn't have a dream. She didn't have a desire to work and she doesn't have to work. So why work? Don't work. Yeah. And don't give interviews. (laughs) It's so crazy. It's like she didn't need to do this. Not only did Leandra not have to do this interview, this was the third time she had attempted to do the interview. I don't know if she thought that she was like being woke appearing on a woman of color's podcast. I mean, I think that was not just inferred, but I think Rachel literally said like, like clockwork, she reached out during the George Floyd protests or something like that. I guess what I found personally offensive as someone who's worked in the fashion space, written, I think at a point had a dream to, you know, have a media entity or like how amazing would that be is to not want it. No, it's like there are a lot of people in the industry that are trying to get where she is. And I think that this interview resonated with a lot of people because Leandra does represent a broader type of girl in the fashion industry, which is a very wealthy, privileged, usually white, usually thin, usually has a professional or social status that they don't really deserve person who gatekeeps and says things that are either like overtly or covertly racist. Like that's a, that like I know that girl. I've worked for that girl. You know, it's a very common thing. So I'm not surprised that this interview gained the traction that it did because I think it is just a much, it's much broader than Leandra. For sure. But then specifically with Leandra, there were a, a few things she said that were just so bizarre, such as the fact that she wanted to be friends with the employees that she had effectively ended their sense of security with a job because she closed the company. Right. And then was like, oh, yeah, I get why they wouldn't want to hang out with me. It's like, why are you saying this? Like, ugh. Look, as I texted you while I was listening to the podcast, I have the personality of a CEO, but even I know I shouldn't be the CEO of my own company because being a CEO is just being a mean mommy. And as Miranda says, no one wants to fuck me. I mean, mommies. you kind of are the CEO of your company <laughs> and you're mean mommy to me. <laughs> like you literally are. Like we have a company. <laughs> you're Leandra. Yeah. You're not Leandra. Sorry, that was so rude. Yeah, I think Leandra is going to like turn into a Karen like shorthand for within the industry. I think this interview and what happened to Leandra and a lot of these early aughts fashion influencers, for lack of a better phrase, signals this end of an era. But it's also like not everything can and should be scaled up. This is kind of where the sort of 
quote unquote girl boss mentality sort of collides with this because it's like, no, not everything needs to be commercialized or needs to be expanded. Sometimes like just have a fashion blog, like just be an Instagram blogger because that's basically what she was before Instagram existed. And it seems like that's what made her happy. Yeah. It's just so irresponsible to have 40 employees and have funding and have people who are dependent on you when you're obviously not dependable. Yeah. And you could have retained having a blog. Well, it's also kind of like insulting to the former employees to release this interview and be so outwardly like flippant about like yeah. your lack of giving a shit. It kind of taints everyone's work there. And another thing that I don't really see spoken about necessarily is the moment where uh, Rachel's editor, she airs a call where he's like, why aren't you going after her? Like, why are you just letting her say these things? We should note that this episode doesn't really adhere to like traditional standards of journalism for better or for worse. Although I kind of loved it, honestly, because she would interview Leandra and then like come in from the future and talk shit about everything that she was saying. Oh, would you like me to do that to you? I would love that. <laughs> I edit the podcast, so... So you can you can let the audience know what a dumb bitch I am behind my back. Well, you've just said it, so what's the point? If I was Leandra, I would be pissed about that. Yeah. And I think that's justifiable. And also, that's not the format, having listened to a few of the other episodes, that's not a known format that she's done. Yeah. And also, there's a business of fashion article about the interview that notes that when she sent the edit of the interview to Leandra, it omitted her intro and outro and those interjections. You know what that reminded me of? The Kanye versus Taylor situation where <laughs> he said... Calls. He just told her, though, like, I feel like me and Taylor might still have sex, but omitted the I made that bitch, bitch famous. famous line. Yeah. That's, that's like, kind of what it is. Goodbye to a certain era of... Uh... It's over. This was the nail in the coffin. Yeah. And that's a, probably a good thing, you know? So I guess no more uh, girl boss, gatekeep, gaslight? What is it that <laughs> Gen Z love saying? GGG. All right, moving on to the list. Garans Dore is an anti-vaxxer? Question mark, question mark, question mark. Didn't see that coming. Over the weekend, Garans Dore, former street style photographer, fashion illustrator, and current travel influencer, posted a note on Instagram that raised some eyebrows, speaking out against the recent COVID restrictions in France. She also stated that whatever your stance on vaccinations was, it's basically your body, your choice. It wasn't that bad what she said but it was obvious that she was an anti-vaxxer does that make sense like there's nothing we could read that would be like extremely fucked up but everything is like a anti-vax dog whistle yeah and then ensemble magazine which later got picked up by diet prada noted all the places that she's traveled during lockdown including new zealand which how did she get in there yeah that is fucking crazy scotland england france she's super spreading is she a travel influencer now I don't know. I've fallen off with her. I don't know what's going on. Also, the last time I saw Garn's story was when she was in Domino Magazine with her fabulously renovated house. Why are you traveling? You've got a great home. Yeah, exactly. Like, stay place. in Venice, bitch. Also, I love that she posted 
just some random like Monet painting as the graphic because God forbid you fuck up with the aesthetic of you know your feed or God forbid you use one of your own illustrations oh that would be cute she could like illustrate someone like not being vaccinated or like yeah a defiant hairstylist refusing to close their salon and then finally we've got Chrissy Teigen who last week posted from her cancellation void onto Instagram to tell us all that it well sucks and she's depressed she said it's a very long post just feels so weird to pretend nothing happened in this online world but feel like utter shit in real life going outside sucks and doesn't feel right is it because the delta variant is ripping through los angeles perhaps uh and being at home alone with my mind makes my depressed head race sorry that's not particularly well written but it's like yeah same (laughs) I mean honestly I don't think there's anything wrong with her post like she's being honest people like her because of her honesty and she's being honest about this which you don't usually get to see because most canceled people employ the like I'm gonna disappear for six months to a year and a half strategy yeah and one thing that she said in this post cancel club is a fascinating thing and I have learned a whole lot only a few people only a few understand and it's impossible to know till you're in it and that's absolutely true and I this is the thing I don't understand about consequence culture cancel culture whatever you want to call it which is like you can't deny that the person who's being canceled it feels different like something happens to your body when that happens to you yeah. Like people just sort of send you out into the void and are like, well, you deserve it. I mean, it. we wouldn't know. We've, we haven't been canceled yet, but this episode could be that nail in the coffin. Although I have friends that have been canceled and yeah, it's... Well, we had an attempted canceling that did not uh, move It didn't forward. really pan out for them. Anyway, I'm, I'm hoping that she's going to pull through that. I mean, she obviously will pull through this. I don't even know why I care so much. I'm not even a fan. I guess I just feel bad for her. Shall we get into fashion? Let's do it. So we're late to the game on this story because no one alerted us to it, which is so rude. How dare you guys? If something like this happens, please let us know, which is Jonathan Anderson, who is the designer behind J.W. Anderson and Lueve, posted a series of Instagram stories which called out the Financial Times for this line in a recent article. About Phoebe Philo's deal with LVMH. Yeah. So the article said LVMH's investments in young brands have rarely borne fruit. In February, it said that it was winding down Rihanna's fashion line just 18 months after launch, while its minority investments in J.W. Anderson and Nicholas Kirkwood have not been successful. A little harsh, but Jonathan posted a photo of their fashion director, Lauren Indivik, on stories and added her and said, does nobody do any fact checking anymore? And then it's so hooey, it's wild. And then he followed this up by posting an issue of the Financial Times magazine that he had recently guest edited during COVID, which was called the Hope Issue. And he captioned that with, what's the point? And hashtagged no hope. I think the first person that kind of picked this up was Brian Boy, speaking of Generation One uh, fashion bloggers. Yeah. He posted all of these screen caps and just wrote, please decipher. Yeah, I mean, he's clearly pissed. It's very strange behavior for someone that has a lot of clout within the industry, you know, even if his brand hasn't been the most profitable to LVMH, which is what they were saying, right? Like, it's not financially successful. They don't mean, like, it's not unsuccessful from a design standpoint. Right. Which is two, like, entirely different things. So he deleted it and then reposted uh, instead his Persol eyewear collab. (laughs) 
Which, like, do you think he's so social media savvy that this was all engineering interest into his personal eyewear collab? I think this shows that he's not that social media savvy and, like, that's fine. He's a great designer. We don't need him to be, like, a master of... Marketer. Yeah, of Instagram stories. Like, it's fine. But speaking of LVMH acquisitions... They acquired Off-White, a majority state in Off-White. Not sure why, but they did. Well, they often invest in their designers' solo labels who are also designing for the the houses that they own. Even if none of them are successful, according to this (laughs) Financial Times According to Lauren at the Financial (laughs) Times, yeah. Virgil, for those who don't know, designs menswear for Vuitton. LVMH acquired a 60% stake in Off-White. But what I found interesting is Farfetch owns New Guards Group, which is the group that paired with Ablo to start Off-White, who control all of the production, marketing, and distribution until 2026 of Off-White. So we're going to have to wait until 2026 for the production issues to be resolved. I mean, because that's what I think that LVMH can really uh, offer him. It's hard for me to understand why anyone that buys Off-White wouldn't just buy Louis Vuitton. And I understand that Louis Vuitton is more expensive, but it's like, I'd rather have a Louis Vuitton coin purse than like an Off-White dress. You know what I mean? You mean for the production inconsistencies? Well, it's just, it's not even that. It's just like design. Like, I feel like with Louis Vuitton, like as much as we talk shit about the styling and the staging of some of his shows, it's like you go into the store and there's always beautiful pieces. Like, I think that Louis Vuitton just has a better team, certainly a better graphics person, certainly a better, like, textile designers and stuff like that. So if LVMH can give him that, I think that would be great. I think it's more a sign of confidence in their designers that they take these stakes in their personal companies. We've also seen where it's gone wrong. You know, Bernard Arnault bought a majority stake of John Galliano when he was designing for Dior. And when Galliano was ousted from Dior, he also lost his personal brand because LVMH owned it. Right. So there are ways that this can go wrong. If Virgil Abloh is canceled. It's not happening. Yeah, it's not I don't think there's any reason to cancel him. If there is someone, just let us know. Um, Not that we want to be those vindictive narcs. (laughs) <laughs> like everyone else on the internet. Yeah, we're very anti-NARC culture. But yeah. just tell us the gossip. Yeah, we, we won't tell anyone. We just like want to know. Anyway, something really beautiful happened on Instagram this week. Mark Jacobs posted a selfie of himself in face bandages around his jaw, around his whole head, basically. And just wrote yesterday, hashtag fuck gravity, hashtag live, love, lift, and then added his plastic surgeon so clearly saying without saying i got a facelift yesterday what a fucking legend this is the reveal in fashion that i'm most excited for it's like fuck phoebe philo's new fashion line i just want to see mark Mark jacobs's new new face face. (laughs) like what else Oh, last night I sent you a very jarring New York Times headline. Opening ceremonies creative director fired over Holocaust joke. So I was like, <gasps> like, we were like, what did Umberto Leon do? <laughs> but as it turns out, this article was actually about the creative director of the opening ceremony of, of the, the Olympics. Olympics. 
you know, in my mind, again, to borrow Who Weekly's terminology, it's like, to me, like opening ceremony, the store and the brand is a them, but opening ceremony of the Olympics is like a who? Like it didn't even like, that didn't even occur to me. But I wonder if, opening ceremonies Instagram just going to be like spammed by random people you know like the Rachel Ray effect uh yes the Becky with the good hair which everyone thought was presumed was about Rachel Roy but unfortunately people started sending hate to Rachel Ray instead that was a beautiful moment in culture anyway Umber- um, Umberto you're in our, you're in our thoughts <laughs> yeah he's fine there's one thing to be canceled but there's one thing to be accidentally canceled <laughs> I was also like, wow, this is on like the first page of the New York Times. Like this is like not even like relegated to the style section. Like what, what did he say? Trendsetters as always. <laughs> Should we be protesting outside of Chifa? Okay, what, else, what other fashion stuff? Con has ended, so we will now do our can fashion roundup. Love it, love it. I'll be switching between the pronunciation can and con. Why? What is it? I thought it was can. It's con. Oh, okay. The French say con. As you Americans, say con, we I say, say can. can. <laughs> Let's call the whole thing off. <laughs> I mean, I guess we should start with Isabelle Huppert, as she is by far the greatest and most glamorous person there. Yeah, if anyone tries to argue with us that Bella Hadid was best dressed in Scaparelli, which we'll get to in a second, we will fight you. <laughs> a thousand percent. She wore like a really beautiful black Balenciaga turtleneck gown. It was so austere and chic. And I also loved how she wore like those Balenciaga boots that are also tights. Yes. So she basically just looked like a silhouette with a head. And to bring back the Sex and the City connection. Very good friends with Kim Cattrall. Think about their friendship often. Then we've got Bella Hadid in the Scaparelli, as my friend Jenny Yang called it, titty necklace. It was basically a black column gown with a large gold sort of breastplate thing that looked like lungs, right? Which is perfect for the tree lungs. Perfect for the COVID era, right? For sure. But I think we agree that the Gautier look was probably better. I agree. And one thing that Cherie from Shrimpton Couture, um, one of my favorite vintage dealers, pointed out was that she wore pasties under it that were like way too obvious. You know, it's like just have your tits out. That's what we want to see. I feel like she's done that before too, you know? Wow. So Bella's not down for the free the nip movement? Well, I guess maybe it's like they are just like too conservative it can, right? But then again, didn't Chicholina's <laughs> dress in the early 90s, she completely had her tits out. <laughs> That's true. She could have just like covered it with the popple like when she was walking through the door. And <laughs> So then we have Timothy Chalamet in a silver jacquard dinner suit by Tom Ford. I mean, I didn't care about it as much as the internet did. I feel like if you're that thin, then you can wear like a skinny suit and it like looks fab, but it's not like you're not doing anything. It was also surprising that it was Tom Ford of all designers. Well, yeah, and that's why the silhouette of it felt a little outdated as as most Tom Ford clothing does. Circa 2021 clothing does. Yeah, exactly. But you gotta love a man that's just permanently stuck between the years 96 and 2000. Yeah, no, a thousand percent. But I think the thing we wanted to talk about with Timothy is that he claims he has no stylist, which is so rude because who is this person working in the wings? Even if you have great style, so you feel like you don't need a stylist telling you what to wear, the majority of styling work is just logistical shit. So who on his team is getting the the FedEx order 
that suit from, you know, L.A. to Paris. Yeah, like, Timothy himself isn't, like, calling FedEx and, like, screaming about, like, f- trying to figure out why something has been stuck like, in customs, customs for, yeah. like, days, you know? Someone is styling him. Someone's doing that work. And it's not his management team because it's too specific of a skill set, especially if it's a star on that level. It's not something a publicist, a manager, or agent would do because they're busy doing their job being a publicist, manager, or agent. Yeah, this also reminds me of Rihanna's recent self-styled Vogue Italia cover, which is like, okay. (laughs) She came into the shoot, there was a rack, they put together several looks on the rack, and she picked the ones she wanted to wear, which is, I imagine, like, what happens anyway on your average Rihanna like editorial shoot right so you're saying you're saying she didn't spend a week pulling from different stores can you imagine her just like going through the like Vogue runway app and like bookmarking things and like emailing the PRs and like getting the tracking numbers and like returning it all it's like that's not that didn't happen so I don't understand why she gets her own hotel room just for all the boxes for all the shit that arrived well it's also the same it's like well she also photographed this it's like okay well they gave her the clicker Rihanna didn't find like she's not like oh let me call my lighting guy you know it's like (laughs) really insane I don't understand why yeah anyone wants to perpetuate this myth in any creative industry because like there's so much that goes on behind the scenes and the simplest thing takes a really skilled person to execute so Timothy tell us who your stylist is (laughs) exactly now um, there was Jody Turner Smith and Gucci, but we want to talk about not the Gucci. That sh- didn't look like Gucci to me. The yellow dress on the it red looked, carpet. To me, it was. I would think I'm like, is this like Jim Batista Valli or like something like like a more like frou frou designer? I didn't really get Gucci. I mean, she looked beautiful. She is beautiful, but you know that the label didn't enjoy it because Gucci didn't even post that look on their Instagram. They posted the look she wore at whatever Gucci event they did. Yeah, it's true. You can really tell when the brands like, like no. what do we do? Who else did we love? Uh, Tina Kuniki in Valentino. Oh, that was so major. But that's not surprising, though, because she's a model. A model's job is to look good in shit that, like, would look terrible on a non-model, right? Like, isn't that why For they sure. have jobs? Yes. I mean, what's worthy to note about her, I was like, oh, my God, she looks so incredible. I'm like, but why does she look familiar? I'm like, oh, this is the woman that's married to Vincent Cassell. So Tina's so strange. Tina's twenty four. Vincent Cassell's fifty four. If his name sounds familiar, he is the ex husband of the gorgeous Monica Bellucci. Yes, and also when Charlotte T- York, aka Charlotte Total York. York. <laughs> so just to put things in perspective, when Tina was born, Vincent was already thirty and with Monica Bellucci. <laughs> they got married when she was twenty one and had started dating when she was nineteen. Okay, so it's a little bit of a Celine Dion and a Renee vibe. <laughs> love and age gap relationship personally for me there was marion cotillard looking absolutely fucked in chanel at the press call for annette she was wearing chanel bike shorts and Mm. like a vest and little chanel ankle boots and it was just like they did her dirty with that sometimes being a chanel brand ambassador isn't as glamorous as one would think she's like can i wear this and they're like sorry margot robbie's already wearing this on the suicide squad press tour you can wear bike shorts though you know who looked amazing in chanel though maggie gyllenhaal Ooh, maggie gyllenhaal who wore a look that we discussed on the podcast like months ago whenever the show came out i forget what it was it was basically like a white satin shirt and then just like a big black what's what are these noises 
Is your terrifying influencer neighbor landscaping or something? No, it's gardening day. I hate this so much. Whatever, the audience can deal. All right, go back to the Maggie Gyllenhaal point. Maggie Gyllenhaal, who wore a dress or an ensemble. I don't know. It looks like it's like a white cream colored satin button down shirt with just like a giant tulle like ball gown skirt basically. it was very yeah sharon stone mid-90s award show vibe she looked like really chic and chanel as did tilda swinton who wore the chanel caftan that i believe we also discussed on the pod of course she did tilda swinton was on the jury this year so we got a, a lot, lot of, of looks. looks yeah and she had a film in competition right like she's in that wes anderson movie that... the french dispatch yes yeah so in addition to the chanel she wore some beautiful Heider ackerman pieces which i think that design really works for her because his clothes are so angular and her features are so angular that it just like feels symmetrical in this really fabulous way. His clothing makes me wish that I was 5'11 and androgynous. I also really loved the whatever her wacky like Loewe outfit with like the giant green pants. I mean, I she's just so glamorous. Like she's of all the celebrities that I've seen in person over the years, she's easily in the top five most glamorous, like incredible. Just an incredible looking person. And then we have last but certainly not least, Bill Murray's ensemble for the photo call for the French Dispatch. I feel like anyone that has a true love of cinema just at some point develops an appreciation for like the lack of fucks that Bill Murray has, like in all aspects of his life, or at least in the sense of like conforming to show business norms, you know? Like, does he still not have like an agent or a manager? The rumor is that he has a toll-free number that you have to call him in order to talk about scripts and such. Yeah. So he obviously doesn't have a stylist. He's dressing himself, you know? He, we actually believe, doesn't have a stylist because he showed up to the French dispatch photo call looking like your kooky uncle at a barbecue. Yeah, exactly. Next to Timothy, who's like done up to the nines. It's like Bill Murray walks the walk. I love him. That's it. Cool. All right. So shall we transition to Kardashians? Let's do it. Kardashaholics Anonymous. This is a case for the FBI. (laughs) So... By the time you're listening to this episode, Kanye's 10th studio album, Donda, will have come out. It's so rude that he does not take our publishing schedule into consideration, but... Are we officially starting beef with Kanye West? (laughs) (laughs) But I think that this will be good because I think that sometimes people overpraise albums when they first come out. Like, you need a moment to digest things. And I don't want to have a bad take on Donda just because I'm happy that there's a new Kanye West album. You know, if people truly care for us, they'll wait. They'll wait for our thoughts. Well, I'm excited that one of the songs on the album is apparently called Junya Watanabe because I'm always of the opinion that more people should be talking about him. But I'm also like cautious about this album because it could be very, very religious. You know, I could hang with the occasional like Jesus Walks or like an ultra light beam or like that vibe, but I don't want, what was his last album called? God is King. I don't want God is King part two. Like that's what I don't want. I think we're going to be okay. I don't know. He was talking about God shit in whatever that Beats by Dre commercial that came out with Shakari Richardson. Is that her name? Yeah. Shakari Richardson. Shakari Richardson. In other Kanye news, Kanye and Kim took their children to the Asian Art Museum in San Francisco. 
love a conscious uncoupling situation. Yeah, apparently they didn't even have nannies. It was just them and security. So I think that's nice. So I, I don't think that we're going to get like a Kim Kardashian or a Kris Jenner diss track on Donda. He's a mercurial fellow. Just give it, just give it a second. So can you explain to me what's happening with the rebrand of both KKW Beauty and Kylie Cosmetics because I'm too lazy to figure it out. IMDB Pro and Human Google is here. (laughs) So basically the too long didn't read version of this is Kylie developed her beauty company first with a company called Seed Beauty. And so they do all the formulas, the packaging, the marketing, distribution, production, all of that stuff. And so when Kim started her brand, she went to them as well. And when Kylie sold her company to Cody and then Kim sold her company or Cody bought a majority stake of Kylie and a minority stake of Kim's company, Seed Beauty started to put two and two together and go, wait, hold on. They bought your company and your name, but not these proprietary formulas we made for you guys. And so last year they sued KKW Beauty and put an injunction because they were like, you're spreading, you know, our industry secrets. And then a couple of days after that, they won an injunction over Koti and Kylie Beauty. So why you saw suddenly Kylie Beauty just like shut the doors, discount a bunch of stuff is... Yeah, I think the last thing we saw from them was like the Grinch collaboration, right? Or at least that's the last thing I remember. They probably settled the lawsuit with Seed Beauty. There's been no updates since last year. But probably Cody, Kim, and Kylie all made the decision of like, fuck it, let's just reformulate everything. Let's use this as an opportunity to rebrand. Kim yeah. Kim can make her allegedly, I saw on TikTok, but then it got deleted, Skin Beauty. Which would be spelled S-K-Y-N-N, which is only one N away from that condom brand that's called Skin. Yeah, I'm still hoping for Skim's beauty. Just keep it all under one umbrella. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, that's basically why they rebranded. Nothing, wow. nothing like a lawsuit to make you do a little rehab work on your on your brand. It's like let's give this a facelift. Might as well. Well, I think it's nice because I mean, I'm not really like the Kylie cosmetics girl, so that really doesn't affect me that much. But I feel like I should be the audience for KKW Beauty, but I don't really care about KKW Beauty. I think because like the packaging doesn't really appeal to me. You got to like a beige palette. You got like a real nude lip. Well, I wear neutral lip colors, but it's like I'd rather buy them from like Pat McGrath or Byredo or something, you know? Is that it? Pretty much. I mean, Kim was at Carbone looking amazing last week, but I think that's a little stale. Yeah, she had like a very sexy like Shakira type outfit on. I still need to understand who's making these custom pants for their proportions. Laquan Smith. That's who. There you go. Okay, should we go back to talking about impending environmental catastrophes? I guess so. I mean, I'd, I'd rather not. I thought that was behind us. But let's be honest, this environmental apocalypse is just a It's just beginning. <laughs> it's just starting. But we hope this was a momentary respite from such dark thoughts. We know exactly. it was for us. It was. It was. This was great. All right. Love um, you guys. Love you guys. Also, I just wanted to remind people, there's a lot of visual references in our episodes. If you click on the link in the description of this podcast, you will be able to see all that shit so you don't have to Google it. Just saving you some time. 
We got you. We know we're describing stuff that there's no way you'd be able to imagine what it is. Yeah, so we're trying to make it easy for you because we're good, kind-hearted people some of the time. Yeah, now we need to get back to, uh, what is it, Gaslight Gatekeep Girl Boss? Yeah, exactly. Bye, guys. Bye. Bye.